Okay, I'd like to uh, ask you all to stand as we read uh, God's Word together. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version, if you have that. If you don't have a Bible, please uh, come forward and help yourself to, to a text here. And we're reading from Philippians. And we're going to start at verse 27 and of chapter 1 and go through to chapter 2, verse 4. So let's read God's Word together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also should suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict uh, that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, or comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look uh, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You may be seated. In the years uh, from 1952 through to 1966, uh, there was a a gas power plant owned and operated by Pacific Gas and Electric. And during this period of time, this particular power plant uh, started discarding unacceptable waste into the water system. They started discarding a a compound by the name of uh, hexavalent chromium. And this substance was known to cause cancer, uh, especially when there was an overexposure to this particular substance. You see, uh, the gas company, uh, Pacific uh, Electric and Gas, had a cooling tower system. And to stop this cooling tower system from eroding, they would apply this chemical into the... uh, into the process. And the wastewater that was discharged from that process would end up in a settling pond. The problem was that the settling pond had no barrier on it, no film or concrete or something to stop leakage into the soil. And so over time, over that period of time from 1952 to 1966, this quite nasty chemical started leaching into the ground and eventually into the, into the water system. Because there was a town close by, a town called Hinkley. It was within a couple of kilometres of the power plant. And it wasn't until the 70s and 80s, some time later, that there was a, a spike in cancer-related disease in that township. So after investigation, they, they started thinking, well, how can this happen? Why is there such a spike? 
And it was discovered that the, the gas company was the cause of that issue. You see, the issue was with the gas company, they, they knew about the problem because from 1966 onwards, they went into the, into the uh, waste system and, and fixed up the issue of leaking. But they told no one. They didn't understand the ramifications of, of what was going on. This factual story has been uh, popularized by the movie Aaron Barakovich. Some of you may have seen that. But the, the issue here is the irresponsibility of a corporate citizen. Right? A complete irresponsibility of their citizenship within a community and within an environment. They acted irresponsibly. They did not fulfill their responsibilities of that community. And I think it cost them $330 million. Not that the money is the issue, it's actually the behaviour behind trying to cover it up and uh, trying to get away with it. You see, with any form of citizenship, there comes responsibility. Whether you're a citizen of Australia, a citizen of New Zealand, a citizen of Vanuatu, of India, of South Africa, or even of Malta, you have responsibilities and obligations. Do you know? When you travel abroad, you have responsibilities to, to be a good citizen of your country and a good represent, representative of that country. You're expected to behave in, in certain ways. And this morning, as we've read through this passage, you'll see and we'll develop this idea of what it means to be a citizen of heaven and what the responsibilities and rights are for us who have put our faith and trust in Christ to follow him in a worthy manner. You know, we've been reading through this letter and I, I hope you're enjoying that. I hope you're enjoying, you know, the the part of reading this letter consecutively. And you would have seen up until this point in this first chapter, you see Paul pour his heart out and he says, I just thank you for your partnership in the gospel. And he prays for them and the prayer was read by Mike as we commissioned um, Alan that the part of that deep prayer was that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. We've read through this first chapter that, that Paul had a, a view of sort of no worries about his circumstances, right? He didn't care whether he was chained to an imperial guard. He didn't care if he was in a situation that was dire because for him, he wanted to advance the gospel. For him, he wanted to defend the gospel. For him, he didn't care who was proclaiming the gospel as long as the gospel was proclaimed. And that's the circumstances that we've read about. We read about this a couple of weeks ago. And to sum up his circumstances, he highlighted his theology of life. And we all know this. His theology of his life is to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's where he threw it out. He said, I don't care about my circumstance. 
I don't care if I come to you in Philippi or if I remain here, if I end up being slaughtered or murdered or martyred for the faith. The fact is I'm going to proclaim Christ. And that's his theology of life, and it comes through in everything he does. So that's where we, we're sitting. That's where we uh, have come to in this letter. And then we've, we've started reading here in 127. And the focus changes. Have you seen the subtle change here? He stops talking about his circumstances. He stops talking about his theology of life. And he starts addressing the Philippian believers. He starts to exhort them. He starts to encourage him. As I've read through this letter, I think these verses are the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate. And his heart is to say, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel. And he spends from here primarily through to the chapter 2, verse 18, diving deeply into that truth. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? How should your life be shaped if you're a follower of Christ? Now these Philippians were in partnership with him. They are highly commended by him. He has a deep love and affection for them. And he pours his heart out and says, how are you going to live your life worthy of the gospel? So let's read these three verses, four verses again. From 127 to 30. It's actually one sentence in the original language. We break it up into different sentences. But I just want to read this again to you and then we'll start unpacking what he is saying. Can't read it without my glasses. I see some sort of images on the page. Only let your life... Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This phrase, this sentence only contains one command. It contains the command to live a life worthy of the gospel. Paul moves from his own theology of life to live as Christ and to die as gain and now solely wax in on this church and says, I want you to live this life. I want to see a practical outflowing of what it means to live the gospel. I want to see some progress in your, in your walk. And at the heart of it, he wants them to understand 
their responsibilities as citizens. You see, in effect, what he's doing here is he's really commanding them in the, what we call a sanctification process. He's giving them a look at what that should look like. He's concerned about their ongoing growth in their faith. He's concerned about their ongoing realization that they are in union with Christ. And you know, this is not the first time he's mentioned this, and we go back to verse 7 of chapter 1. And he makes this personal comment and he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, for Paul, part of confirming the gospel is living the gospel. And this is in the practical terms where he drives to in this section. He's already introduced it. He says, you're a great partner with me. You're you're partnering with me wherever I am. You're, You're gifting me gifts. You are praying for me. You are walking with me like no other church has. You are partakers with me of the same grace that has has saved us all and the same grace that continues to spur us on. And in the defense of the gospel or the apologia, where we get our word from apologetics, the apologia of the gospel, you have been part of that process. And the confirmation of the gospel. And the confirmation of the gospel is what the gospel looks like at the ground level. It's what it looks like when you and I walk out of this door on a Sunday morning and walk into this world and proclaim Christ. That's what it looks like. That's what the confirmation of the gospel is. And he's praying, I deeply want to see the gospel working in your lives. So let's just break this part. Let's just break it open a little bit, just for a, just for a moment. We have the very first sin, and let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The very first phrase in here. So what does that actually mean? Well, just to help you out here, whenever you you struggle with perhaps a sentence or a structure, look at some different translations of the Bible. It's a good thing to do. Because different translators will put uh, different uh, meanings to words. And this is helpful in this particular case. So, for instance, if you look at uh, the NIV, the New International Version, the NET, the New English Translation, or the NASB, New American Standard Bible, it will, it will uh, interpret, not interpret, it will translate this verse, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. See, the verb we're talking about here is a, a unique verb. It's only used twice in the New Testament. It's used once here and once in Acts. So when we have a limited use of a word, sometimes we we struggle to find the breadth of the meaning. And we have to go to other sources. We have to go and and look at other early writings. We need word has been used and, and how it was used in the common day language of the time. In the King James Version, 
it says, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now, so they're quite different, aren't they, when you look at those two verses. One, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, and let your conversation be as. So the King James has become more interpretive in its view here because it's limiting, it's limiting this concept to just a conversation. Your speech, your talk. So that's why it's important to, to look at different translations because this helps unpack what he's really saying. In the ESV, and we've read this, you have, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So it removes the word like conduct yourself or conversation. It just sort of encompasses all of life. And the NLT says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news. So which one's right? Shall we have a show of hands? Which one's right? Do we go by popular, uh, I don't know, uh, popular versions, three of them say one thing? Do we go by the numbers and say, well, three of them said it, it must be okay? Do we go with the more interpretive version? Do we go with the ESV, which is more general, or do we go with NLT, which is the New Living Translation? You see, because this word is unique, we need to understand the background of who Paul is writing to, why he's writing to them, and what situation they're in. We have a church where, we've done this stuff a couple of weeks ago, they're in a Roman colony. They're under Roman citizenship. As a church, they have to align themselves to what goes on inside that city. The political pressures, the economic pressures, the, the requirements for them to even learn a living inside that city is quite stringent because of the way the Roman system is set up. And Paul starts placing a fairly strong contrast in here. And I would think that the NLT gets it. The NLT says, I want you to live as citizens of heaven. I want you to realize where your citizenship lies as part of your growth in the gospel. You're not a citizen of Rome. Yes, you are in a way, but your real citizenship is in heaven. For those of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, where is our citizenship? It's in heaven. Can that ever be removed from you? No. What is the responsibility of being a citizen of heaven? As you walk this earth. And that's what Paul addresses. And that's what we'll look at for the rest of our time together. If you want to know what the technical term here is, this is the, um, 
The Greek word is politomai, and it really means um, to be a citizen or to, be, to govern a city or state. That was the general flow of the word. And I think it's rightly translated. ESV does a reasonable job. NLT does a better job to live as citizens. And Paul uses this metaphorically. How does he use it metaphorically? Because he says, I want your citizenship to be worthy of the gospel. He ties citizenship to the gospel. You see, to live as a citizen meant that uh, for the Greek and later for the Roman, all the rights and privileges and duties and responsibilities needed to be displayed. You know, for a Roman, um, they had great pride and responsibility attached to living as part of a Roman colony. They had great pride and allegiance to, the, to Rome. And in turn, Rome required faithful conduct. You see, the Philippians knew of their citizenship. They knew where they lived. They knew the responsibilities of being Roman citizens. Remember, this is a letter written primarily to non-Jews, to Romans. And he really wants to just play with this idea of dual citizenship. Yes, you live here in, in, in uh, Philippi, but you're a citizen of Rome, a citizen of the heaven. Just like you and I, we live here in Kilsyth, or whatever other suburb that's close to Kilsyth. But folks, we're not just citizens of Australia, we're not citizens of our city, the Marunda city, we are citizens of heaven. Realize your rights and responsibilities. You see, living in this Roman colony was a real challenge for the Christian. A real challenge. Because Rome controlled things in a way that's kind of unique to to what happens today. They used to license uh, particular guilds to operate inside the city. Yeah, for instance, Judaism was licensed. It was licensed under Rome. And it, uh, initially, Christianity was sort of thought to be part of Judaism. But by this time, by when the time Paul wrote this letter, in early AD 60, this was changing. Christians were, con- were seen as an issue. They were seen as a problem. They were seen as anti-Roman. You see, Rome used to, to break things up into voluntary associations, whether it was a professional association like a trade guild, like uh, the sellers of purple would get together. All right? And they, they would, they would um, evidently in Thessalonica at 80th Street, wherever that was in Thessalonica, you had the guild of, and they found this archaeologically, they had the guild of the sellers of purple. So all the trading of, of that particular cloth was done in that area. Um, we, we see in, in Ephesus they had the guild of the sellers of silver and the, the things of Art, Artemis, you know, the little wee idols that they used to provide the temple and all these silversmiths would get together. And they got pretty upset when the gospel started breaking away their prophet. 
when Christians were coming and saying, no, you serve another God, you don't go to the temple. You see, so Christianity was starting to get at the Roman culture because they weren't really aligned. They were, yeah, sure, they acted as good citizens, but their allegiance was to Christ. And you can see how if you were part of one of these trade guilds, if you were part of one of these professional associations and you claim to be a Christian, all of a sudden your livelihood would start to be cut off. So this is one of the reasons that uh, Paul grabs this concept. And he instructs them. He says, hey, you know what it is to be a citizen. You know what it means to to be civically responsible inside this colony of Rome, Philippi. But I want to tell you something greater. You're part of a believing community. And when you're part of a believing community, there's a different view on life. There's going to be different pressures. And there's going to be things that you need to to come to grips with as part of your growth in Christ. So let's look further at the text. So, live your life as a worthy citizen of Christ. And Paul says, he gives us a result. Whenever you see so that in the text, it it's a, becomes what we call a clause of result. He says, okay, if you live like this, this is how it should look. And he says, so that, you know, I don't care whether I'm with you or whether I'm absent. Your behavior shouldn't matter. You should still be living a life that's worthy. But these things I want you to look at. And you see them in your Bible here. There's two, two verbs. I want you to stand firm and I want you to strive side by side. You see, as a collective community of Christ's followers, we have strength in numbers. We're called to stand firm around the faith of the gospel. We're called to strive side by side, to contend with one another for the gospel. We're not like the Philippians and we don't have this this pressure that was being placed upon them, but we do have pressures being placed upon us, don't we? As we walk, as we talk, as we interact with the communities God has placed us in. We do have some form of pressure, but he exhorts them, stand firm, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he he says uh, something kind of interesting here. In the middle of those verbs, he sandwiches, sandwiches an attitude. Be of one mind, and be of one spirit. So be unified in what you're doing. It's at the heart of what he does here. And and the next sentence drills a bit more deeply into what unified means. And we'll look at that uh, shortly. So the key questions here, as for the Philippians, 
is so how should we live as a citizen of heaven here on earth? And secondly, as citizens, what pressure does the culture impose upon us to stop us from growing in our faith of Christ? What are the questions we're going to wrestle with for the rest of the morning? You see here, something else that comes in this text. It says, if you're standing firm, if you're striving side by side, if you're with one spirit and one mind, there comes a real solidarity. There comes a real strength because whatever your opposition will be, it doesn't matter because God is growing you through that experience. He states it here that don't be frightened of it. Don't be frightened of your opponents. Don't be frightened of of the, the Romans who could impose very harsh things upon you because it's a sign of their destruction. It's an interesting term, isn't it? It's a sign of their destruction, and, but it's a sign of your salvation. If you endure these things, if you have one mind, one heart, one spirit, standing firm as a collective body, please note this is as a body. It's not as an individual. He's gravitating the whole congregation together and saying, you need to stand firm together side by side. That's where your strength comes from. And it should drive away fear. Drive away fear of men, drive away fear of opposition. Secondly, he looks there in verse 29, and this, is, this astounds me when I start thinking through this. Read this with me. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Not only is the sanctification process a body thing is us together. It's also something that's been granted to us. What's been granted to us according to this verse? What's been granted to us according to this verse? Look at it. When you read it, does it surprise you? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, so belief has been granted to you, And what's the second thing that's been granted to you? Suffering. That's not an easy believism, folks. And being a heavenly citizen means you will suffer here on earth, according to these verses. Being a heavenly citizen means that the way of suffering is for the glory of God. And you've seen it, haven't you? You've seen when someone has suffered deeply, but then stands and gives God the glory. And says, I cannot get through this. I could not have got through this yet for the grace of God. And that's tremendous. And that's encouraging. And that's how God's Spirit works within us 
You know, this being granted to you is a very powerful statement. It relates to the road we must follow. In technical terms, the, the verb is an aorist passive, which means it's something that has been preordained from eternity past by God. So whatever trials and circumstances you're going through here as a follower of Christ, do you realize I've been preordained? Why? For Christ's glory. So that you can learn to rest and rely upon him, to be dependent upon him, to, you, to allow his spirit to mold and shape and refine you. And this thought of suffering for Christ is counter to our evangelical culture. It's absolutely counter. Mainstream evangelicalism today does not paint this picture. It paints a picture of your best life now. It paints a picture of consistent blessing. It paints a picture of a false gospel because that's what it is. When you're a follower of Christ, you will suffer because the cross is an offense. The average Joe blow in the street, the message of the cross is an offense. What do you mean I'm a sinner? What do you mean I need a savior? What do you mean is even, even judgment after death? The scoffers and mockers, right? And unfortunately, in mainstream evangelicalism today, we have gone down the road of therapeutic gospel and says, hey, the gospel's all about you. It's all about fulfilling your needs. The gospel's about Christ. The gospel is about suffering for Christ. The gospel is about relying on his spirit to mold and shape and refine you for the glory of God. Being transformed by his spirit for God's glory. And suffering may be physical, it may be emotional. But folks, if you're a follower of Christ, expect it. Because that's what Paul says. He says, not only in my own life, not in the same conflicts that I'm enduring here and under house arrest, but the same conflicts that we endured together. Realize that you've been shaped in that. Let's move to the next four verses. I'll reread these. Uh, chapter 2, 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ... If any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look only to his own interest, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. See, he starts to build further on what it means to be a citizen of heaven a worthy citizen of heaven. Not only stand firm, not only strive together, not only be unified, not only realize that your suffering is for God's glory and, and you need to call out, of, out to him in the midst of that for your shaping and refining, 
But now he really concentrates and drills back down this unity principle. He wants to develop further what it means to be of one mind and one spirit, as uh, said in verse 27. And he uses a really interesting rhetorical technique or literary technique here in verse 2 of chapter 1, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. Uh, it's what we call, uh, he uses a clause structure, which is called a third-class clause structure. And, and this is really a structure that sort of states the obvious, right? Really states the obvious. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and you better believe there is. And when you read that, that's the way you'd read it. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, you just see Paul, right? Any encouragement in Christ. And as a Philippian believer, you say, you better believe there is. If there's any comfort from love, you better believe there is. And there is comfort from love. If there's any participation in the Spirit or the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, yes, affirmative, there is participation in the Holy Spirit. Any affection and sympathy. Yes, there is sympathy and affection of being one in Christ. It's a strong rhetorical technique he's using, and it sort of jump. We don't get it in our English, but in the original, it just jumps out at you. And and he's saying these things are all true. And then he goes down to explain this, and the command here is complete my joy. Complete my joy by being like this, by being and understanding, uh, being of one mind, having the same love, being fully unified, doing nothing at a rivalry or conceit, showing a great deal of humility, and being selfless. That's where he's driving with this. But notice how it happens. What is the key thing that's mentioned through this sentence? How is your heart and your actions transformed according to this sentence? Starts with the mind. It's a constant refrain through here. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, being of one mind, being in full accord. Also in 27, it said, one mind. He's talking about having the right attitude, having the singleness of purpose, having a mental concentration. And he uses these verbs throughout this letter. I encourage you as you read it, as you read the letter you know, in one sitting 20 times over the next little while. How are you going with that, by the way? How are you going with it? Who's reading it? Fantastic. Well, next time you read it this week, Circle all the words that, that may be uh, around this verb. Words like think, consider, regard. You'll be astounded. This is the heart of sanctification. The heart of the process of sanctification for Paul is to use your mind to start the process. You think about it. Romans 12.1, we know these verses so well. These are beautiful verses. Romans 12.1, as he instructs them, uh, the Roman church at this time, he says this, after going through the body of Romans and laying out the theological treaties of the New Testament in the first 11 chapters, he stops 
in 12.1 and says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by how? By the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Philippians, he states the same thing. I want you to be excellent and pure and blameless for the day of Christ. How? By letting your love abound more and more through discernment and knowledge. The mind is important, folks. The mind must be in gear when it comes to the sanctification process. It's not about emotion. See, when the mind is engaged, you can understand the things of what it means to be unified in love. You can understand what it means to be of one accord. When the mind is engaged on the things of Christ, humility will reign. When the mind is engaged on Christ, your self-centeredness will decrease and your selflessness will increase as you serve others. He's saying as part of being a good citizen, as part of being a worthy citizen, engage your mind in the things of Christ. Let the mind of Christ dwell in you richly. And that will cause the actions of love, unity, humility, and selflessness. This too is counter mainstream evangelicalism. Because today, by and large, the church is concerned about the therapeutic about sentimentality, which leads to an individualistic gospel that encourages people to consider that God has nothing better to do than to make sure his children's lives are filled with blessing. That is not the message of Philippians. That is not the message of Philippians. It is not the message of the gospel. The gospel shapes us. The gospel renews our mind for his glory. The gospel and understanding the truths of scripture, yes, understanding theology, moves us in a direction to make us worthy citizens. So where are you at today with this? Are you determined, going to determine to live a life worthy of the gospel as a citizen of heaven today? You may not even know what a citizen of heaven is. You may not have a relationship with Christ. I don't know you all here. But I can affirm that there is no heavenly blessing without Christ. Without Christ, there is only a judgment to damnation. 
So if you're here, you're in around us today and don't know Christ, I just implore you to speak to somebody who brought you, to speak to me, to Shabu, to John. Because this is the most important thing. But as followers of Christ, how's your citizenship going? How's it going for you? Are you considered worthy of the gospel? Are you growing in your faith? Is your mind engaged in the process of transforming and renewing? Because when it is, you'll have a victorious experience in life. You won't be concerned about your circumstances. You will see that your circumstances are there to shape your walk with Christ. Your concern won't be for yourself. It won't be self-centeredness. It will be for others as you serve the body of Christ and serve the community in which you live. You see, to follow Christ in Kilsyth will result in hardship and suffering. We're in a culture that hates God, folks. They hate the claims of Christ. So whenever you step out and say, I'm going to proclaim Christ, it's going to bring suffering emotionally and physically, perhaps. But remember, together we're a collective. We're a body. We're, we're, we're the body of Christ that together can strive and contend for the gospel. And when it's all said and done, we're citizens of heaven. Our home is secure. And one day we'll be with him. So this morning, seek the Lord to renew your mind, to renew your actions so that you reflect humility and a deep love for your neighbor. When this is happening, you're a worthy citizen. And all this is only done through the power of the Spirit of God in you. Thanks, team.